Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis, aka crumbly joints. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. This week, we have the privilege of discussing what is osteoarthritis. And we are joined by none other than Professor Chris Little. Chris is a qualified veterinarian and has expertise in all types of osteoarthritis, but particularly animal models. And his research interests focus on defining the biochemical and molecular mechanisms of joint pathology in osteoarthritis. And he's recognized internationally for his expertise in the development and use of animal models in both bone and joint disease. So, Welcome, Chris. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, now, just getting started, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? And, and you know me well enough to know, David, that five words is never enough to, to talk about myself. But <laughs> And there won't be enough hand-waving as I say. <laughs> I, I think in the, I'm going to do it in the context of, of this podcast and the question that we're looking at in my work. And so in, in that space, and some of it crosses over to regular life, I would probably describe myself as passionate. Um, I'm going to combine two words into one since you've only given me five, which is insatiably inquisitive, thoughtful, dedicated to what I do, and lastly, maybe lucky in the context of being able to do what I do. It's a lovely great privilege to be able to work in this space yeah i appreciate your honesty and obviously having the privilege of knowing you 
um, appreciate your uh, accuracy with some of the descriptors as well, because I think uh, most of what you said there is is very accurate. And so, as I said at the outset, um, this particular episode is on what is osteoarthritis, which is obviously key and central uh, to a person's understanding of what osteoarthritis is. So, if you had to tell me in lay terms what osteoarthritis is, what would you say? I think, and I'm not sure how lay this is, I think it's a disease of joints that results in their dysfunction and associated pain and disability. I think in, that's in a context, that in a nutshell, I think is what it is. And what, if you could just expand a little yep. bit on what you mean by uh, dysfunction. Yeah, okay. So I, so I guess I guess the things I would say is those Joints can be anywhere. So often we think of specific joints, but that could be hands, hip, knees, spine, anywhere where you have a joint. And a joint is, in my simple terms, is simply a space where where two bones meet. And, and we have bones, I'll go all the way back to, to biology, we have bones basically to, to give us solid bits of, of tissue to hold up the, the floppy bits that we need. Um, and to enable us to move around. And if you just had single struts of those solid bits, it wouldn't be a very efficient way to move around on stilts. So we need those bones to move relative to each other. And joints have developed over eons, decades, thousands of years to, to enable that to happen in the most efficient way. And so a dysfunction of a joint is, is I guess, when that joint ceases to to work properly to enable that function we talked about, that almost frictionless movement of those bones relative to each other to occur. Um, and, yeah. Fantastic. No, no, I think that's, uh, that's a great explanation. And um, just digging into osteoarthritis a little bit more, mm -hmm. a couple of concepts that are often bandied around are this is a disease and this is an illness. Yeah. Um, can you help us to understand a little bit about the differences between those two descriptors? I, in, in, as I would think about it, the, the disease is the pathology, the abnormality that happens in, in that joint itself. So, so if I think it, the, the disease of a joint is a progressive failure um, of that whole joint as an organ. And, and so... I think of it a bit like other diseases or systems or machines is that you can affect some parts or components of it more than others and that might be different in different joints and different individuals. So my analogy is an engine. Um, and so that engine's got a whole bunch of moving parts and, and we want it to function well and it can either dysfunction, it might be misfiring, not working quite well, or it completely fails. So you can have an engine that, that just won't turn on and won't work. And, and in some cases, that can be because of a faulty carburetor or intake, air intake or the oil pump or the, the fan belt, the spark plugs, all of which can give you dysfunction of that engine. It's not running well. And they can all individually cause the, the engine to stop completely or the dysfunction and they'll affect other parts of it. And so if I take that analogy in a joint, a disease of a joint would be dysfunction of or abnormality in one or more parts of the joint. And so I said a joint was two bones that need to move relative to each other, so you've got the bones. 
They're covered on the end with this softer tissue called cartilage that enables the bones to slide, bone ends to slide across each other. A bit like an engine, it's, it's encapsulated in, surrounded by soft tissue and it's lubricated by a special fluid that's, that's kept special by the cells that surround it. And in some joints, you've got other bits, wedges in there that hold the joint in apart, ligaments. And all of those have to work together in a normal joint. And any one or all of those can be affected disease-wise in a joint. So you can have change in any one of those. And then the illness, so that's the disease, and that's the stuff that, that I study, you study in, in different ways. So we could look at disease grossly. We could look in a joint and see the cartilage is eroded or the ligaments broken or the meniscus is torn. Um, so a surgeon might do that. And, and you might look with imaging, MRI or X-ray and see changes. And I, in the lab, I might look at the cells or the molecular change even and see that disease. And the illness part of it is what's the consequence of that to the entire individual? As a vet, that might be a dog or a horse or a cat. And as a rheumatologist, that would be a patient with osteoarthritis. So the illness is the consequence of that disease that's going on, that change in the joint. And that is about the pain, the inability to use that joint properly. So it's the, the consequences of what you feel for that joint. And, that, and it can also be broader than that. So yet your joint may be dysfunctioning and that pain may be a problem and that might lead to further illness more broadly. So you might have, be anxious because of it. You may get depression. You can not walk around so well so you can't exercise so you now gain weight. All of those are the illness, the consequence of the disease that's happening in the joint. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic description of both of those concepts. And I, I guess the importance of describing and understanding those two is that the disease, the, the pathologic change, if you want, in some of those structures is not necessarily one and the same as the illness. And whilst a person may have one or more broken parts in an engine, uh, using the analogy that you, you used, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to present with pain, disability, and the other features that may go along with, with the illness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, historically, there's been a lot of different terms that have been used to describe osteoarthritis, um, including one that's called osteoarthrosis. Um, and so they've tried to remove the itis from the descriptor. Um, are joints inflamed in osteoarthritis? The, the simple banal answer to that is yes. I, I, guess, I guess the nuanced answer is potentially to different degrees in different people and different joints at different times within the one joint. So inflammation can wax and wane. Um, but I think, I think we've, we've come full circle and we've come all the way back to using the itis term, which, which means inflammation for osteoarthritis. And it seems very clear that at some level there is some degree of inflammation in an osteoarthritic joint um, beyond a normal joint. It may not be as much as the, those sort of bona fide inflammatory or immune-mediated diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis, or, but there's absolutely inflammation. Um, 
and and in some ways that the simplest way to even think about that we used to use this diagnostically in in when i was a, a vet working with horses is if you give an anti-inflammatory so is the is the lameness is the gait abnormality is that the illness we're seeing in that horse in that case because they can't tell me is that associated with pain or is it actually a physical dysfunction they simply can't flex and extend as they used to so we would give an anti-inflammatory drug we would give aspirin or ibuprofen and that makes a difference and it still makes a difference to most people to some degree with osteoarthritis so you're better at that answer than i am so in very simple terms that tells you that there is inflammation somewhere associated with osteoarthritis yeah yeah and uh, you know i think just expanding on that a little bit further obviously a lot of people believe that um the development of the disease uh has historically been largely a mechanical one but I guess many people believe now inflammation obviously plays plays a key a key and critical role. But then, in addition to that, as you just suggested, it helps to inform what treatments might be helpful yeah. uh, for different people at different stages of their disease. Now, um, a lot of people similarly describe this just as an old person's disease. Is this just an old person's disease? Uh, the, the very simple answer to that is no. Um, it's it's clear that that age increases your risk of osteoarthritis and it may increase the speed of its progression or the risk of its progression and worsening but young people can get osteoarthritis and i guess the most common time you might see that is is with injuries someone might injure their knee or injure a, a joint and and can quite rapidly develop osteoarthritis and, and I guess that terminology that, that you and, and others in the field have used is we see young people with old joints. So, so while we classically think of osteoarthritis as an age-associated disease, you can see exactly the same thing in young people. And, and in the space that I'm in and animal models, we can see it equally well in young animals as in old animals with the same injury. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Um, now, extending from that, um, and thinking about how the disease uh, develops, the underlying pathologic change. Some people, um, you may not necessarily be one of them, but some people commonly use terms to describe osteoarthritis, wear and tear, uh, degenerative joint disease, osteoarthrosis. Are they an accurate description of the underlying changes going on within the disease? So... So you and I differ a little on this, as you know, Dave. So, so wear and tear, absolutely not. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of a concept of that raises the idea of sandpaper grinding down wood, and, and that's just not what's happening. We know this is a, a biologic response. So it's an active biological process where the cells and components in each of the joint tissues that we talked about earlier actively contribute to the disease they contribute both in terms of attempted repair but also we know they contribute to the progressive breakdown of those joint tissues and structures and and they contribute to the pain you have to have living cells and you have to have um, living responses in fact to perceive pain and to get that illness from it so it's clearly a biological disease degenerative I'm, uh, if you think of degenerative in the context of it 
being an, a natural, inevitable process of something breaking down, then it's also not true. If you use the Oxford Dictionary, which is simply that it is a progressive breakdown and a progressive destruction, then I think it's fine because that can still be biologically driven. But but it's it's clear that this is an active disease. And and one of the reasons I'll I'll use go back to the work that I do. So if we if we induce an injury in an animal that we would see in people, so a footballer might break their cruciate ligament, and if we do the same thing in an animal model, and we'll talk about those later, then they will get osteoarthritis. But in doing some of the treatments that we do, if we never repair the biomechanics of that joint, so we never restore normal biomechanics, then with certain genetic modifications and certain treatments, we can stop the disease from developing. So that tells me that the biomechanics is still abnormal. It's still trying to do the wear and tear phenomenon. And yet biologically, if we stop those cells from responding, we can stop the disease from progressing. So I think that's a great example of biology trumps biomechanics um, in, in this process. Yeah, and I think just to understand the potential difference here is when I hear the word degenerative, I hear some age-related connotation. <laughs> yeah. Um, and consistent with the answer to your previous question, this isn't just a disease yeah. of old people and every joint still has some capacity for repair, even those that are, that are most old and most yep. destroyed. And so I think to use the words degenerative and particularly to use the words wear and tear, yeah. it portrays a pathology whereby people think that more activity on that joint may help it to degrade further, which yep. is not the type of message we're trying to convey. Yep, I agree, I agree wholeheartedly. Now, what we might move on now is just talk a little bit more about your work and obviously your focus uh, in large part, and I'm probably simplifying it, is on animal models of disease. Can you describe the most common models that, or model that you study and how that might or might not relate to human disease? Yep. And, and maybe I'll just quickly I'll, I'll sidetrack quickly up front, which is because it can be a contentious issue for people, which is in using animal models of any sort of disease in, in, in research and to look at human medicine. And the reason we do that is that despite how wonderful some of our um, computing systems and, and studies in the laboratory can be, we are yet to be able to mimic the intricate interactions between cells and tissues and biomechanics that occur in a living animal or human. And, and so the ultimate best model for us is to, is to look at what happens in that context, in a living animal that is that is walking around and doing things, and, and and we do it under very strict ethical guidance, and we have to justify it. But that's the rationale for it. So then, within the animal models of osteoarthritis, far and away our most common one still is models of joint injury. So these mimic very well the injuries that we see in people. So I talked earlier about breaking the ligament, your cruciate ligament in your knee that we see footballers and netballers and all sorts of people do, tearing the meniscus, the little um, other um, wedge-like structures in your knee. Those two injuries are still far and away the most common models that we use. There's a lot more work being done these days with spontaneous age-associated models, so just allowing animals to age naturally and or adding in 
having animals that are overweight fed high fat diets and obesity so age and obesity driven are also increasing in their use but far and away the most common is injury you know and, and this is just digressing for a second but when we think about the risk factors for why a person might develop disease yeah overweight and obesity is uh, usually the single most important factor followed by injury and um, yeah. other than factors play, play important roles including age uh, yeah. gender uh, genetics occupation yeah and and we can model those really nice so in fact when we do for example an injury model we know that if we do exactly the same injury in an otherwise young healthy animal mouse it might be versus an older obese or female sometimes versus male then the disease is more rapid, more severe, more progressive if you're older, if you're obese. So that mimics exactly what we see in people really nicely. So we try and have our models modelling the human disease. And I think one of the things you asked about translation is I think one of the traps we've fallen into is to consider that osteoarthritis as a single disease entity, that while all roads lead to Rome, they can take different routes to get there. And so if the end stage is this disease joint that we can see you get there in different ways so an injury induced model may not have in fact we now know it doesn't have the same underlying cell molecular drivers of disease as osteoarthritis that develops with age or osteoarthritis that develops with obesity and then when you start combining all of those you start combining different factors and so one of the great things I think that's come out of some of the recent animal model work is to understand those differences and, and to realise it's not a one-size-fits-all. It really matters what drives it and how you got there, not just for the pathology, the disease, but we also think now for the illness. So what's causing your pain in a given joint? The molecular pathology of that pain might be different pathways if it's an obesity-driven disease versus an injury-driven disease. And, and that's a relatively new concept for us, and it probably explains some of our failures over time in translating what we've done to people. Yeah, and I, I can't emphasise enough and echo what you were saying before about the fact that people do get to osteoarthritis through different paths and the different what we call phenotypes uh, that delineate why a person might get to osteoarthritis you have a wonderful ability using the models that you, you study to try to delineate those a little bit more clearly than we can in humans where oftentimes uh, risk factors for why a person might get disease are not a single risk factors in, yeah. in one individual you know they may have family history and overweight or obesity or they might have a joint injury and an occupation that place, places them at greater risk um, and you know, one of the other things I've always admired about the work that you do, and you've emphasised this to me on a regular basis, is that you've cured osteoarthritis uh, lots and lots of times, and something that I would love to be able to do once in our human models. But why have you been so successful in curing animal osteoarthritis? But what's the rate-limiting step to getting that to happen human models so while while in our daily banter i talk about cure if i'm doing this publicly now and anyone's going to listen to this conversation we're having ultimately i don't think i or anyone else in the preclinical 
discovery space of osteoarthritis research has actually cured it, cured osteoarthritis, in terms of restoring a completely normal joint. I think we can certainly delay the onset. We can delay the progression. We might even be able to halt the progression of the disease. But I don't think anyone yet has then had that joint turned back to a normal joint. And, and that's, I guess, ultimately a cure. And again, I keep talking about disease, and you mentioned it earlier, a lot of those cures, those halting disease progression, successful therapy, let's say successful treatment of osteoarthritis rather than cure at this stage, have been focused on the disease, the pathology in the joint, and they haven't necessarily therefore also had concurrent improvement in the illness. So while I can stop the progression of the disease, if it's still at that same point it was at, in some of these studies, the animals still have the pain and disability associated with the joint at that stage that it was at. And it's always important that we need to link that disease and illness. And in many instances, that's probably consistent with the human clinical trials as well, and that we've been able to modify structure, but not necessarily commensurate yeah. symptom changes associated with that. So I guess... Why, why hasn't it translated well? I think it comes back a little bit to in our animal models that we do, we have an otherwise healthy individual. We induce the disease by one or perhaps sometimes a combination of mechanisms, so an injury plus or minus obesity. We know exactly when it started because we did it and we induced it. We know exactly the genetic background. And so we can target that treatment very early to the end effect. So it's fantastic. It tells us that this is, we didn't think so until probably 15 years ago with animal models when the first one came out that we could stop the disease process, that this is a preventable and treatable disease. Whether it's reversible, as we talked about earlier, I don't know. And, and so I think the keys to that translation, if you were to try and mimic what we do in the lab in people, you would need to be able to diagnose it very early. You'd need to know today this person has now become at risk of. You'd need to know who in the population is at greatest risk of progression because, as you will tell me, if, if 20 people in a room all injure their cruciate ligament today, about half of them will get osteoarthritis and half of them won't. And we still to this day don't know what the difference between those people are, so if we could tell who they were, if we could differentiate well the subtypes, the phenotypes that you talked about, not just simply by a name like age-associated or post-traumatic, but really their underlying molecular mechanisms. So if we knew that this was driven by this enzyme or this cytokine or this molecule, and when we could do that, if we could do that in people, then we could translate tomorrow what we know from our preclinical models so so we'd be able to select out of the 100 people before us with osteoarthritis we'd be able to say you two need this treatment you five need this treatment you 20 need that treatment do i think there'll be a single one-size-fits-all treatment i, I doubt it um, so i think it'll be at better segregating the human population this is this is arrogant on my part to better match the models that we do um, so that we can we can then figure out what treatment's going to work best for what person. Fantastic, and thank you for expanding upon that. And now, what is something that you like to do that other people might consider weird if they knew? I love those questions at the end. 
So I think maybe weird is I like to sit in movie theatres for up to 10 days on end in the dark and watch consecutively maybe 30 or 40 sometimes weird and crazy movies on end. And that's every year I attend the Sydney Film Festival and do exactly that. And I think to some people that's a pretty weird thing to do. To me it's a fabulous way to be able to escape and immerse yourself in, in something else. It's, it sounds it sounds wonderful and deep immersion and obviously extreme sedentariness for that period of time. But what's the biggest challenge you have with your role right now and how are you going to overcome that? Aside from, from our current worldwide pandemic, that the overarching problem in research is is in funding. And and I don't this is not just a call for funds. It's in it's in being able to financially support and underpin the personnel that will have the time to pursue all the exciting avenues of research and ideas that we have. Um, funding is tied everywhere, and, and when you have to then cherry-pick up front which things you're going to pursue, it's very easy to, to, to put your bias, and so you go with the the status quo and what's safe and comfortable and, and I don't think that's how you make great discoveries and changes so I it's really about being able to to pursue everything that we have as an idea and that sadly that comes down to having enough time and personnel and that comes down to funding. Yeah and I truly wonder if in the current climate that's obviously the virus is an oppressive threat for everybody yeah whether people will recognize with greater uh, insight and thought and forethought, the importance of ongoing investment in, in research. Uh, because I think w- what we're facing now in many ways is uh, preventable and with clear identification research and, and appropriate investment, we could have handled this a hell of a lot differently. Yeah, I, I, I think we could have handled it differently. I, remarkably, I think we will have a, I'm very optimistic, and I think the fact that there was already were already people who had done a lot of research in SARS and MERS and the preceding things, that some of that basic research that wasn't necessarily needed for those because they had different disease courses and were able to, to more rapidly run out of run their course, I think we're very rapidly going to the speed with which the developments of of vaccines, different vaccines, potential treatments in this space, I think is going to be extraordinary. That that we, we're three months into this thing and clearly the long-term development will still take 12-plus months, for, but that already there are three trials in early stage, certainly in, in animal models for vaccines for this disease. I mean, that's remarkable if you think how long it used to take. So, so I think I think that's a sign how important research is, uh, how important getting that knowledge is. Yeah, and obviously the coronavirus is kind of overwhelming at the moment. But yeah. let's just put that aside for a second, if you can. Um, but if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? Ah, uh, honestly, it comes back to my previous answer. I would put more money and resources into research. And, and I would do that in, in two streams. I, I would do it in the clinical research in that space that, that you're more heavily involved in for the, for the here and now, the improvements that you can make today. And critically, I would 
do it in the basic discovery science research, which I think is where the big advances and cures will come from. So, so I think the more we can invest our infrastructure, our time, our, our resources into research, that ultimately will make the biggest improvement to healthcare, I think. Fantastic. Uh, and if you could remove all of the barriers and constraints to either the work you're doing or the work that you want to do, what project would you do? Yeah, I, I, it, it actually it came up earlier in conversation from you, which pleased me that, that, that maybe there's some hope for it. I, I have a pet project, so I'm in that space of, of, of discovery research, and, um, but I'm in that space in health, and so it's important to improve the translation of what I do into patients. And I think for me that would be in better modelling the human diseases. So I, you said earlier, um, people will rarely come to you with one disease. They don't just come with it. Clearly, you could be a young, otherwise healthy person and you injure your knee. But most of the time, people would come to you with two, three, four, five other conditions. So they might have cardiovascular disease or obesity or diabetes or some renal disease or neurologic problems. And we, and by that I mean me in the lab, and I also mean in pharmaceutical companies, and not just in osteoarthritis, but across medical research, we almost never model that. We almost always look at our favourite disease on its own, in isolation. We find treatments that work in that space, the cures that we talked about earlier. And then we wonder why, when we take those into people that have two, three, four, five other comorbidities that are interacting, they don't work. And, and so I think we should, that should be our goal, is that we should have universal ways of, of modelling that. So, so we're interested, for example, that, that osteoarthritis is an independent risk factor when you take away all the other risk factors for cardiovascular disease, and we have some research in that space. So surely then people studying cardiovascular disease should have all of their animals have an osteoarthritic joint because at least half of the population they're dealing with will be exactly that, and we think there's a direct link between them. So I think it's in that space. I, I have a real pet project that I'd like to do it. So far I haven't been able to convince the funding agencies to do that. Yeah, but keep knocking on the door. It's really important. Um, now, what's the most important single thing that you've learned in your life, whether it be professionally related, personally related, whatever it is? I, I think it's that, uh, it's, it's a belief system in some ways, but, but I think it's that knowledge is the key to everything, that, that when you really know why and how something happens, then you can make a change. Even if it's just being ready for, for, for the consequence of something. But when you know the intricate details of why and how something happens, then you are armed with what you need to deal with that, either cope with it or make a change or to stop it. Um, and so that, to me, knowledge is everything. Fantastic. And how do you continue to learn to, I guess, invest in that knowledge in order to stay on top of the things within your role? I don't do it enough these days. I get lost in other um, aspects of, of work, but I think you keep reading everything that's available, you keep listening to other people, and you don't, you don't get caught in the 
trap of thinking you already know it all because you absolutely don't and that's the key wise wise advice and uh, yeah i'm going to give you two questions here and you're welcome to answer both but if you want to just pick one you're welcome to do that as well but what is your biggest failure and what did you learn from us or and or what's one thing you wish you had known when you began your career I think my biggest, I'll do the biggest failure because that's easy. There's plenty of failures to look at. And I think my biggest and ongoing failure is is really in managing my time. So, so in being excited about all sorts of things, I, I don't manage that well. And that has consequences not just for me but for the folks that work with me. So they suffer because of that. If I don't manage my time well and, and deal with what they want to do. So so I still think that's an ongoing thing. I wish I did better. Yeah, it's important professional advice, I think, for anybody. But um, what, what in this interview, what should I have asked you that I wasn't smart enough to ask you about? <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess what, why is it that I do what I do? Uh, maybe. Uh, and that's that sort of um, am I driven what drives me to do it? And, and the the true answer to that is the one that I said up front to your first question. That the true reason I do what I do is my insatiable thirst for knowledge and understanding about how and what and why things work biologically. And a great side benefit of that is that that should improve how we can manage and treat disease. But it's really my dirty little secret is I just love understanding why stuff works. And that's really what drives me every day to get up and to do my reading and to, to talk to you on podcasts. <laughs> and that insatiable <laughs> curiosity is something that I love spending time with you on. But do you have any favourite stories from your work life that you're happy to share? I think for me it's when I get uh, – this is going to be a generalisation, but I think for me it's, it's when I get to see the joy and pleasure in other people's faces that I recognise in my own when they get that same thrill of doing some research and being so lucky. The great thing that we get to do in research is every day you have the opportunity to see something that no one else has ever seen. For the very first time you can see something. And that's an extraordinary thing to feel when you see that. So when I, that's my insatiable thirst. And when I get to see someone else in my group, a student or a postdoc or someone, have that sudden moment of discovery and joy at doing it, that's one of the favourite things I love to see. Yeah, and uh, I share that share that with you. Where can our listeners connect with you online if they wanted to? Probably the simplest places because all of my contact details are there would be one of three websites, Sydney University. Look up my name, Sydney University. All of my contact details are there, email, telephone numbers. Same for the Colling Institute where I work at North Shore Hospital. The Colling Institute website has that detail and the Institute of Bone and Joint Research website. I think also has that. So those are probably any one of those. You'll find a contact for me and I'm happy to respond to any questions. And in closing, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? The more we know and the more detail we know it in, the closer we'll be to understanding and a cure. And you're welcome to have as your parting words of wisdom, but if you have any other parting words of wisdom for our listeners, don't hesitate to share them. Oddly, my despite you know the current climate we're all in, 
And this has been a, a wicked disease for us and we don't currently have a cure. I'm remarkably optimistic about this. I, I really think at the knowledge and our understanding of this disease in the last 10 years has really blossomed. And so I'm incredibly optimistic that we will find ways to both treat the disease and the illness. I share your optimism and that's why I come to work every day and I think between us we are making an important, a lot of difference. So I, I want to thank you very much for your time, uh, your enthusiasm, your ongoing uh, curiosity and energy. It helps to drive me and a lot of the work that others do. But that's all for this episode. And so between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong and stay active. And for all of those listeners, join us next time when we're talking about further matters related to osteoarthritis. And thanks very much for listening. And thanks, Chris. Thank you, David. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. And please leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointaction.org. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.